Welcome to the Filmlings Podcast, a weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is week 14, Samurai and Sombreros, Volume 2. It's back. That's right, it's back. Round two. We couldn't leave yeah. it alone. We couldn't, and uh, it's not over yet either. Uh, maybe not exactly in this form, but stay tuned. Right, this story of um, co-influences between Western and Eastern cultures, Japanese and American films, um, influencing each other and adapting to each other, sometimes getting sued by each other, um, has not stopped ever, but this is a really interesting period in time to compare compare these two, and this week we get to go head-to-head with um, two... Fantastic filmmakers, Kurosawa again and uh, Leone. Yeah, so this is going to be um, pretty fun. We did, for those of you just tuning in, uh, a couple weeks ago we did Samurai and Sombreros, uh, the first one, uh, which was Seven Samurai by Akira Kurosawa and The Magnificent Seven by John Sturges. Uh, but this week we get uh, Kurosawa versus Leone, and Leone is such a great filmmaker um, that these two films really can and have held their heads high uh, in cinematic history for many, many decades. Yeah, so Yojimbo is a 1961 film uh, from Kurosawa, so it's about five years after Seven Samurai. Um, actually, one actually one year after The Magnificent Seven, so we're kind of riding right on the coattails of our last episode. Yeah, yeah, and this is also during that uh, really hot period in uh, Kurosawa's career where he was just turning out hit after hit after hit um, and definitely improving from each one to each one. Uh, but this is also, while it's kind of a, another Jedi Geki film, uh, another period piece, it's less about uh, sword fighting and it's a little more about uh, social commentary. And uh, as, as we'll explore in this podcast, it's definitely a dark comedy as well. I'm always shocked yeah. about how much I laugh at this movie. It's much funnier than Seven Samurai. Seven Samurai was much more dramatic. Um, and also more dramatic is A Fistful of Dollars, which is a remake of Yojimbo, um, although not credited as such, which has some implications that we'll talk about. Um, from 1964, uh, and it's, it takes the same story, puts it in the West, give it Clint Eastwood, um, and it still has some humor, but it's definitely not a comedic film. Um, and it is actually the first, uh, considered the first spaghetti Western. So it was the kickoff of an entire genre that we're still seeing implications from, um, and it's also Leone's second film and first to get a lot of recognition, I think. So we're seeing the kickoff of a genre and a director's career, a great director's career. Um, so, but that all started with Yojimbo. So do you want to talk to us about the basic story of Yojimbo? Yeah, so Yojimbo takes place in 1860 during the final years of the Tokugawa shogunate in Japan. So there's a lot of turmoil in the country. Um, the government's more or less falling apart. Um, the countryside is basically falling under self-jurisdiction. And a big part of that is there's wandering samurai about. Um, and 
gangs controlling towns. And that's what we're dealing with in this movie. Um, our protagonist of the film, Sanjuro, um, or in this, this uh, episode in his series, um, Kuobataki Sanjuro, which means 30-year-old mulberry field, he always names himself after whatever kind of um, field he's looking at whenever somebody asks yeah. him his name. So he's essentially... He just makes it up. Yeah. He's, he's the samurai with no name, which, as we'll see, is a parallel to the Dollars trilogy. So Sanjuro arrives in one of these towns that is being controlled by two rival gangs. Uh, one is run by a family, a father, um, his wife and their son who run a brothel. They were the original gang in the town. Um, but the, the leader of that gang was betrayed by a lieutenant who formed a second gang, um, which we'll refer to as the Three Brothers Gang, um, which is run by three brothers. One who's a bit older and wiser, one who is a bit of an idiot, um, <laughs> and one who is um, kind of like this dangerous snake-like gun gunslinger. Um, that is the only gun in the entire film because it's 1860 yeah, Japan. Sadistic. Yeah, that for sure. Um, and each of these, each of these gangs is allied with a mayor of the town. The original gang, the family Quote, gang. Quotes around mayor. Yeah, yeah air quotes around mayor. Um, the original gang is allied with the original mayor of the town who is a silk merchant but is definitely involved in their illegal activities and then the second gang the brothers gang um is allied with a wine um a winemaker a sake maker who um is is also declared himself mayor of the town so there's it's a split town it's basically chaos both gangs are hiring street thugs to um to work for them uh and sanjura walks into this town and he more or less takes it upon himself to clear the town of both gangs um yeah and we he should, has a line should, at, at the beginning of the film that's like i get paid to kill people and there's a lot of people here that deserve to die so that kind of sets the tone for the rest of the movie yeah yeah it's it's interesting he and and we'll get into his his interest in money and his interest in um being a good person later on um but we should mention that the the title yojimbo means bodyguard in japanese yeah. and uh he goes back and forth offering his services between these two although he does this pretty much with the uh, express purpose of pitting them against each other. He's basically a chess player of sorts um, where he he makes his moves very specifically to get a reaction from one side or the other. Yeah, it's, it's definitely uh, a lot of the interest in the film doesn't come from fighting, but so much as um, these, these strategical political moves that he and the two gangs make um, to play off one of another. Um, and the, the individual people within each gang, um, to, to vie for power or vie for respect or, um, vie for their lives, depending on who we're talking about. Um, yeah. but we should also mention a few of the townsfolk, um, cause we don't see many townsfolk. 
Yeah, so there are definitely some important players who are not necessarily associated with either gang. Um, we have the constable, which I believe is the first character that we find um, besides one of the thugs um, who's not that important. But the constable is the most cowardly of probably anyone in the town. He's always kind of hopping around and he calls out the time and stuff uh, for everybody. And he just watches and hides in his in his little house whenever stuff is going down. Um, and then there's also the barkeep. Basically, he runs the little the, the little restaurant in town, but uh, no one really eats there. And so they mostly just go there to drink Um and he is very adverse to uh, our Sanjuro character uh, staying in town because he knows what a bad place it is. And he's like, just just move on. Don't even bother being here. Um, and he wants everyone to stop fighting. And then right next to him works the casket maker, uh, they call him in this. Um, and he is kind of the opposite. He wants the fighting to keep going because that's what keeps his business running. Um, so it's funny because we have... These, these two opposing sides who are the best friends of Sanjuro. And um, so they're constantly, the, the, the fighting is starting up again. Oh, man. And then, oh, yes. So it's like that, that back and forth um, kind of thing. Yeah, so the first family uh, he goes to is uh, the gang run. After he gets a brief uh, rundown of what's going on in the city from the barkeeper. Right, 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 right. So after after that, there's a fairly iconic scene where he calls out um, both gangs and then cuts down three members of the brothers' gang very easily. But after doing that, he goes to uh, the gang run by the original mob boss in the town, run by the the family of the... Uh, husband, wife, and son, and he asked this family for uh, money—a lot of money, by the way. Yeah. He even insults the former um, head uh, fighter of that family, who runs away and gives him a knowing look as he jumps over the wall. Like, I know what you're up to. Um, a really great scene to kind of set the the comedic tone for the film that that travels alongside these these dark political mu- moves. Yeah, real quickly, I just wanted to mention that um, the way that this is set up is pretty brilliant because um, all the money in the town is paid through uh, Rios. Um, and if you don't know what that is, that's fine because we didn't either. But the way that it's set up is brilliant. He offers him, what is it? He starts off at uh, two Rios, two or three. Yeah, he offers um, him three and works him up to like, 50. Yeah, and then Sanjuro threatens to leave, and he's like walking out. He's like, no, four. Oh, no, no, five. And he's like, uh, add a zero to that. Sanjuro says that. And uh, so he, he eventually works him up to 50, but just through that, like the fact that we started at three and we get up to 50 tells us how much money that is. Because otherwise, if he had just been like, all right, 50, we wouldn't have felt the weight of, okay, this is a pricey, a pricey deal going on. Yeah, yeah, because I don't know about you, but I don't have my uh, modern American dollars to um, ancient Japanese <laughs> Japanese Rios conversions down. I don't, I don't have that memorized. So that's a really good way to set it up, and that's essentially what uh, Senjuro does over the course of the film: is um, play off these families off one another by threatening to go to the other side unless he's paid more. 
Um, and then right. he barely does any fighting over the course of the movie. Um, but he does get to meet this family at the beginning. And we do want to mention that um, the father is... He's a decent crime boss, but he's a bit of a pushover. And the wife is really overbearing. Um, yeah, she's kind of the one calling the shots. And the husband is a little bit of a figurehead. Not totally, but... Uh, like the the first time we see the wife, um, the husband is meeting with Sanjuro, and then she comes in and is like, "We got to talk," and then he's like, "Oh, she's such a crazy wench," and he's like, "I'll be right back," <laughs> and he just leaves. <laughs> yeah, he you you know who's actually running the gang, um, uh-huh. and then their their son is supposed to be the heir to the family uh, business, but he's a total wimp, um, not up to the to the task. And, and his parents are definitely overbearing on him over the course of the film to try to get his act together. Um, but the reason we're, we're, we're diving into these uh, characters in uh, such detail, um, more than we normally do for all the, all the characters that you see in a film, is the, the, the way that Kurosawa builds a character on screen is really distinct um, and really heightened. It's, it's more than your average um, physical presence on screen, I think is the best way to put it. it. It's just so interesting to watch them move on screen, and Kurosawa is really big on motion, but he likes to give each character kind of their own signature trait, their own, their own specific thing that they do that uh, makes them stick out, and it works really well in this film. Yeah, especially in this one because it's, um, like we already said, more comedic and there are almost some points that are overly comedic um, on a sort of cartoonish level. And I don't want to say cartoonish because it's not like uh, silly or low-level humor, but it's it's like you were saying, that over-the-topness where, um, and we'll get into this in a little bit, like the music kind of accents what's going on in a way that, you know, if Bugs Bunny were tiptoeing around, the music would be do-do-do-do-do-do-do. The music kind of does that in this too at some points. Um, and that's also how some of these character choices work. Yeah, it's got that heightened, punched-up theatrical vibe to it um, where, where you kind of so almost the, feel like they're playing to the back of the house. Right. The The one of note is uh, Sanjuro's, I guess, character tick, uh, if you will, is he kind of shakes his shoulders. I don't it's know how to, how to describe it. <laughs> yeah, um, it's, the, it's, the best, uh, yeah, the best way to describe it probably is... Um, that uh, Kurosawa asked him or, or told Mifune that the character was kind of based on like a wolf or a dog, which in stray the stray dog, yeah, yeah, a stray dog, which in the context of the film makes sense because he's just kind of wandering around looking for a meal at the beginning of the film. Um, yeah, there's actually a line also whenever he first meets the brothers gang, uh, all the little henchmen come out and they're egging him on and they're like, You come on, go on your way. Even stray dogs pass freely. And then everyone laughs like that's the most hilarious thing ever. Um, But that kind of sets him up immediately as this stray dog. And also there's another dog um, at the beginning. There's a literal dog. (laughs) A literal dog that as he's walking into the town, the first thing we know about the town is this dog coming out with a human hand in its mouth. And we're like, oh, okay. So that's what we're getting into. Yeah, yeah. that's, That's their way of saying this is the bad town to be in is uh, yeah. when you see dogs walking around with hands. Um, 
well, not their hands. It's not, they, they have paws, but they have, <laughs> he has like a human hand in his mouth that's been severed. Um, and is now in the dog's mouth, but I digress. Um, yeah, to, to, Toshiro Mifune developed this shoulder shrug, kind of like he's flicking off fleas, um, is how, how I read it, how it was described mm-hmm. to me. And it does look like that, and it, it, it's it's a pretty signature move, um, especially considering the, the opening shot of the movie is like... It's pretty long. It's, it's a few minutes long. And for most of it, we're behind Sanjiro as he's walking along this road. And we get to yeah, well, all the see him like, kind of do like these shoulder rolls and these shoulder flicks. And that's how we get to see him enter the town. And um, Typically, if he's he's doing that, like stuff's about to go down. So it's it's a nice character trait. It sticks out. It, it sticks in your head and uh, helps define the character and stick them out in this kind of theatrical way that um, Kurosawa builds these worlds. Yeah, and real quick, while we're on that opening shot, um, one of the first things we see after all the opening credits finish is um, Senjuro picks up a stick and throws it into the air, and then it, it lands, because he's come to a fork in the road, and wherever the uh, there's one side that has like a fork in it lands, and then we see his feet literally... Um, kind of echo the stick and he walks in that direction and it's just a perfect silent um, cue that he doesn't know where he's going it doesn't matter he's stray he's just walking around um, trying to pick a pick a path but he doesn't really have any direction it's just that one that one choice of of tossing a stick basically um, flipping a coin gives us a lot of character information without him ever telling anyone yeah I'm I don't have anywhere to be. I don't have a master. I'm just wandering. Yeah, and the other character trait I really want to mention is um, the the youngest brother of the brothers gang, who's turns into the main antagonist of the film, um, and the only one kind of smart enough to deal with uh, Sanjiro as he's out tricking all of these other kind of, um, I guess, stupid villains. And criminals that he's dealing with. Uh, yeah. But anyway, the youngest brother is named uh, Unosake, uh, and he returns halfway through the movie. He's not even there from the first half. Um, but he, when he returns, he comes with a gun. And that's that's the big threat from him, is that he's smart and he has an advanced weapon. Um, yeah, that was kind of the, uh, the mystical threat in Seven Samurai, too, was the firepower in a mostly um, agrarian in a mostly agrarian setting and then with swords as the uh the available for hire people i guess yeah yeah when the when the 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 weaponry was still kind of medieval but uh someone's walking in with uh a a 19th century firearm long distance weapon yeah 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 that's a big step up that's a big step up and it's a big raises the stakes immediately yeah, and he um, he has a kind of similar trait that kind of echoes um, Sanjiro's trait. Um, and for starters, they both keep their hands like inside their robes for most of the time, yeah. which seems it, weird to me and disconcerting. But it does connect the two characters, which I think works well since they're they're rivals or arch enemies. Yeah, I, I was say always arch enemies, worried. but they're enemies. Yeah. 
I was worried that uh, Sanjuro wouldn't be able to get his arms out fast enough and grab his sword at like several points. <laughs> I think <laughs> like, that's... Just take your arms out. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's the point. I think it's supposed to um, trick both the audience and the, uh, the the other characters in the film into underestimating him um, yeah. to a certain degree. And then suddenly, oh my gosh, he's super deadly with his, his right. sword out and about. Um but Unosaki, instead of using a sword, uses a gun, and he kind of just pokes the gun out from the in between the rope. He doesn't even use the sleeve. He just goes to the middle um, and pokes his gun out and has this really creepy, wide-eyed smile. Um, and from what I've been able to find, it sounds like uh, Kurosawa mostly based that character off of a snake. And that, that imagery kind of works with the idea of a snake with that big um, open-mouth smile creepy eyes and um a sli- like the gun kind of slithers out from from the robe to become a threat that could strike from a distance um and it kind of yeah, works i'm 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 interested though because i understand it whenever you know you hear it described that way but when you watched it before you knew that did it seem like just a strange choice to you um it seemed off-putting but it made a sense. Awkward. But it, but it made sense that it was off-putting, because this is, because because I thought of the character as he he's kind of a psychopath. Like he he looks like a psychopath. Yeah. Um. In in the way he he expresses his face and acts towards the other characters, um. So the fact that he's like babying this gun inside of his robe and then kind of like poking it out like that, um. At first, it seemed weird. But I think it makes sense as you watch it that this is just who this character is. Is like he's kind of a weird guy, um, but he's a dangerous guy. Yeah, but here's the other thing about it is that I believe um, we see Sanjuro do it first, uh, but not he doesn't have a gun in his robe. But he'll stick his hand up through the center of his tunic and kind of rub his chin or whatever, and that seemed weird to me um, at first too. And then. Unasaki was doing it uh, so uh, I don't know I almost kind of felt I don't know if it's him trying to identify those two characters again but I think it may have worked best if you know Unasaki was the only one who did that throughout the film because I noticed it on both accounts and I was a little confused uh, I do like the fact that they keep it uh, inside the ropes uh, a lot of the times because it kind of connects the two of them um, and I also like the fact that when Unosaki does it, it's a threat. And when uh, Sanjiro does it, it's just a scratch his face. Um, oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, so while we're talking uh, more detailed about the brother's characteristics, the middle brother, whose name is Inokichi, uh, he is our primary comic relief. Um, he kind of hangs around Sanjuro a lot because he thinks he's tough and cool and uh, he thinks that he's tough and cool and so he wants to be around him but he's an idiot <laughs> um, <laughs> that's putting so, it mildly yeah that's putting it mildly and we mentioned in in Seven Samurai I think that Kurosawa was heavily influenced by uh, Shakespeare and even in Shakespeare's darkest uh, dramas he has that element of comic relief and Unosaki is definitely that for us. So we get this, you know, he puts on this macho persona, but um, he really 
can't live up to it. So there's a great, um, the, the, the best example of this that I could think of is at some point the, the barkeeper is asking him to carry a casket down to the graveyard. And, uh, he's like, no, I'm not going to bother with that. I've got more important things to do. Um, but he really needs him to help him. So the barkeeper says, oh, okay, well, are you too scared of a dead man in this casket? And he goes, what, what did you call me? No, I'm not scared of anything. He's like, okay, where are we taking this thing? And the barkeeper says, we're going down to the graveyard. I think I saw some ghosts over there. And he says, oh, well, I'd be relieved to see some ghosts. And so he like goes off thinking he's going to be all tough and face down some ghosts. But you can see the like, the just the, the knee jerk reaction of fear that he has kind of betrays his real character. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And definitely also just the design of the character. Like his appearance oh, on yeah, screen look. is kind of uh, gives away that he's the comic relief. They, I mean, they gave him a big fake unibrow and these hopefully buck teeth. fake. We're we're praying it's fake. We're, we're yeah. I hope it's. I mean, this isn't just even like a standard unibrow. This is like an obscene, bushy unibrow. Like I don't think anybody can grow on a unibrow like this. I think it's humanly impossible. It has to be fake. <laughs> um. And um, on IMDb, the character is described as Ushitora's rotund brother. So if yeah, that doesn't clearly give you set enough. Up to be the comic <laughs> relief. Um, but it, but it's interesting because um, if if you take a step back and think about what's happening in uh, the movie Yojimbo, you know you, you just have from a these, logistical standpoint. Yeah, it's these these dark political moves where people are being killed and. It's these crime gangs and going up against each other and, and kidnapped. Yeah, yeah, it's really dark. But there's also like a lot of humor over the course of um, the movie, which I think is one of the things that makes it a fun movie, which it really is. It's a fun movie to watch. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting blend, and like I was saying, it's almost Shakespearean in the way that you know. Except for it's it's almost more Shakespearean comedy just in its general sense. When you leave it, you leave with kind of, you know, a a more light mood than a dark and depressed one. Um, and it's just this this fact that these dark things are almost the backdrop to the comedy and to the uh, social commentary about class uh, class systems and the stupidity of, um, you know, gang wars and feuds and all this kind of stuff. And of course we can't talk about Yojimbo without talking about violence because it's a samurai film and there's swords and there's blood and there's killing. Um, but the most interesting thing about the violence is not that it exists, but that it's depicted in different ways throughout the movie. It's not just... Um, yeah, it's like different Consistent levels throughout. of gore. Yeah, uh, so sometimes, you know, somebody's arm will get cut off and we'll see uh, gushing fountains of blood um, in black and white, which I always think is slightly yeah. different, but it's definitely still like gushing for, for a fountains second, of blood. But... Yeah, um, and then other times when um, there, there's a fairly large arc in the film, I should mention, where um, there's a wife of one of the uh, farmers of the village has been kidnapped by um, the mayor affiliated with the Three Brothers gang and um, eventually Sanjuro uh, saves her 
And when he saves her, he kills the six bodyguards um, assigned to protect her. Uh, and it's really not that gory of a scene. You see him cut him down, but you don't see spurts of blood. Um, you don't see limbs cut off. You just see people hit with a, so- a prop sword and they fall. Um, yeah. And it's still a really good scene. Um, in fact, it was copied basically exactly. Yeah, almost <laughs> in a shot for shot. Dollars, but um, it, it's just not that, that bloody, which um, I think at least is kind of it's kurosawa choosing when to emphasize the violence and when to emphasize um the motive behind the violence so uh, that moment where um senjiro is cutting down a couple thugs in the street um and we see blood spurting everywhere um we're emphasizing the fact that he has this 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 violent capability and he's a threat to these and gangs the skill yeah and he's his skill but when uh we see him cut down the bodyguards um that whole arc is kind of about revealing his deeper character motives and that you know he's actually is like he's he's a decent human being he's a good person he's um putting his whole into whole entire plan at risk of destroying these gangs um by trying to save this woman and reunite this family um, and he even at the end of it gives them like all of his earnings up to that point, which is, uh, I can't remember how much it's like 30 Rios or something. It's a, it's well, a buttload of Rios. What, yeah. What that one was, was, uh, he, he found out about the whole kidnapping the wife thing. He goes to the gang that did it, says, I'm going to be your bodyguard. Give me 30 Rios. And then goes and kills all the guards and then gives him the 30 that he had just got from them. Yeah, which is but those that's all he had at that point because he had been giving him back. Yeah, it was it was perfect. Yeah, but that scene, that violent scene where he's 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 killing those guards, is not about the violence he's committing, but it's about the 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 motive behind the act. That the fact that he's risking um, his entire plan to save this family that he doesn't need. Yeah, to it's save. like the it's like the most altruistic. Thing he does most purely altruistic um, action that he takes which also says something about the movie that his most pure action is killing six people <laughs> yeah, um, that's a good part I didn't think so about that let's not forget about that but it, it definitely is um, a selective use of violence which I think is really interesting and um, you know maybe that wasn't authorial intent I think with Kurosawa I'm, I'm willing to bet a lot of money that it was um yeah, it may have been. But regardless, like it has budget, a great effect. Budget and logistic issues, also. Um, yeah, yeah. I feel like a, I feel like so many budget and logistic issues in the past century of film have been chalked up to an artistic intent. Um, yeah. After the it's fact, hard, it's hard to differentiate sometimes. But if it works for the movie, then it's something that we can draw from because even if it wasn't put there intentionally, um, you know, you could still be inspired by that and kind of take the same idea and apply that to another movie later on as an intentional choice rather than, um, so you don't let it just become, yeah. uh, Yeah. That's like the first rule of filmmaking. If you did something on accident that people like pretend you did it on purpose. Yeah. Don't, don't contradict the, (laughs) just, just roll with it. Yeah. And the last thing we want to talk about specifically, um, about Yojimbo in this non-spoiler section is the fact that, and we mentioned this in Seven Samurai, I believe, 
But Kurosawa was heavily influenced by Western film and by Westerns as a movie genre. Um, so the, the fact that this film, after he had gotten some recognition for his feudal, uh, feudal era films, it now comes as like one of the uh, articles that we read this week basically said, this is a Kira Kurosawa saying, all right, well, let me show you just how Western I can be in my filmmaking, um, speaking culturally, but also specifically as a film genre. It is literally set up like a Western. There's um, wind blowing and dust rolling in and leaves tumbling by like tumbleweed. Um, and this little town where people are, uh, you know, hiding behind their shutters and stuff and afraid of the, uh, the big bad fighters on either side and stuff. So it's, it's um, set up as an influence from Western films. So that means that it's perfectly set up to be adapted into a literal Western film. Right. And, you know, that brings um, up another point about Kurosawa. Um that I think I want to finish off this this uh, analysis with on Yojimbo before we transition over, um, is that his his be, maybe because he was so influenced by the West is one of the reasons why he is um, such a successful Japanese director in the West. Um, I mean. Rashomon basically busted open Japanese film to the entire Western audience. Um, and, and, and he, throughout the years, has remained probably um, the most popular Japanese live-action um, director in the West. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why he sticks with us is because he took so many Western influences into his filmmaking. Um, is that it still looks, seems different to us, but there's there's still familiar elements in it that that we can um, we can connect with. Um, so when we watch Yojimbo, we're like, this is really cool. But you know what? This reminds me of a western. So it, it seems different because it's you know it's in a different culture, all those reasons. But it still has a a, a ring of familiarity um, because right. of the influences that went into it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so with that that point, we're going to uh, move on along to the same story, but in a Western with A Fistful of Dollars uh, from 1964. And Jonathan, do you want to uh, take us into that one? Absolutely. So A Fistful of Dollars is, um, and I won't go through the whole story because, like we said, it takes the story from Yojimbo and puts it into a Western setting. So... A cowboy rides up to a town, um, and the town is held by two warring factions. So one is the Rojos, and they um, smuggle alcohol. So both both gangs um, are smuggling things to Americans who can buy it cheaply and then uh, bring it back to the United States and sell it for more. Um, so the Rojos are smuggling alcohol, and the Baxters on the other side are smuggling uh, guns and arms. Um, so the it's kind of interesting, though, the way that this film starts is we start with seeing two little um, kind of cottages and uh, a little boy runs out and runs to one and goes in 
and then is promptly chased out by some large men with guns who are shooting at his feet, telling him to run back to the other house. Um, and a man from the other house comes out and grabs him, and then we see a woman in the house that the boy had run to stand at the window, which has bars around it, um, and look out at them. And so we're kind of set up right at the beginning with this family drama um, that we had seen in Yojimbo, but which was only um, even mentioned halfway through the film. Um, so that's that's one difference as far as the the setup for the story and the characters goes. Um, we're we're immediately faced with with um, our no name character who is called alternatively uh, the Ameri the Americano and Joe throughout the film by different characters. Um, but Joe sees this happening, and so he's already, you know, kind of taking this in that, okay, something in this town is uh, is not right. Yeah, and of, of course, we have uh, another legendary actor playing the protagonist. Um, but at this point, not quite that legendary. This is kind of the start of something. Um, Baby Eastwood. Eastwood. Yeah, he plays the, the man with no name. Um, that would become infamous. He, he's, he's very similar to Sanjuro, if maybe definitely, yeah, definitely, uh, more motivated by, uh, money. And later on, we, we kind of get to see that he, he has some inner heart that he reveals, but his, he doesn't have a line where he talks about, um, how he can, there's a lot of people here who need killing and I can kill him, um, like he's gonna cleanse the town or anything. He has the line where he talks about, um, there's the Rojos over there, the Baxter's over there, and there's me in the middle, and I'm gonna make a lot of money, essentially. Yeah. That's, that's, that's his goal. So that brings a slightly new vibe to the film, and it, it definitely leads to a different, um, a different tone when we get to, to certain scenes that we'll go into in uh, more detail here. But, he does have he still has a lot of similarities to um Sanjuro and it's just adapted really well so instead of wearing a a traditional Japanese robe that a, a samurai would wear um he's wearing um a poncho which kind of has the same flowy vibe and he kind of flicks it occasionally in the same way that um Sanjuro flicks his, his shoulders um in that that whole I'm a stray dog flicking off fleas kind of vibe, um, yeah. Except does, for uh, except for Joe, it's you know whenever he's about to shoot his gun. So when he flicks that thing, stuff's about to go down. Yeah, which you know is the same thing with Sanjuro. Like typically when he's, um, except to a lesser extent, because he doesn't always he doesn't always kill right after it. He just yeah he does it as does he's it walking. When he's tense. Um, right. But, but you know, he's, he's kind of the same character. He's, he's this hardened criminal. Um, I think they describe it really well in, in this movie. Uh, he's a nice guy pretending not to be nice. Um, right. He's really good with a gun. He's, he's super smart and super dangerous. Um, and maybe a little too ambitious. But definitely a, a good adaptation. Like a better than good adaptation from Yojimbo to A Fistful of Dollars, um, keeping the heart of the character, but changing certain parts of him just enough to make him feel slightly unique. 
Yeah, and and they do some plot changes and stuff that uh that kind of set up characters better. Like so one thing about this film is that it takes these dark things that happen in Yojimbo and it kind of shows us how dark they actually are. Like we feel the weight of them more and it's less about um the comedy and the uh social commentary and more kind of straight, I guess, like we're seeing a lot of people dying and that's not a funny thing. Um, so, but just to kind of give us an overview of some of our, our major players, the, uh, the barkeeper, it has some character changes in him. He's, uh, still our, uh, Joe's like best friend in the town, kind of, kind of a guy, uh, almost henchman, but he's much more interested in what Joe is doing. He's not, uh, moping all the time about how everyone's fighting. He's he actually like, he's like, hey, wait for me. I want to see. I want to see what you're gonna get yourself into. Um, like this is the only a, interesting thing that's happened in this town in decades. <laughs> right, exactly. I see. Yeah. He doesn't like the fighting, but he's not saying, "Oh my gosh, I can't, I just wish the town would stop fighting." Um, and then the casket maker is actually somewhat less of a character in this one. Um, yeah, he's just crazy. He, he has a big role, but he's he's kind of the the loony old man in town. Um, he's hilarious, though. I love him. Um, and then, as far as the brothers, so the brothers gang, as we called them in Yojimbo, those are the Rojos in this one, and they're the alcohol smugglers. And the there's no stupid brother. They're all pretty ruthless, um, and the. We can see that really blatantly in the way that the, uh, so the equivalent of the brother who had gone off and came back with a pistol, and that was kind of the the big threat in town, his equivalent in this film, the first thing that we see of this character, whose name is Ramon, he's the intimidating one that everyone talks about before we see him, um, is that part of their gang had intercepted a group of U.S. soldiers and killed them and stolen their clothes and then rode up to meet with um, a group of Mexican soldiers to do a, a gold and guns trade. And then he just literally mows down the entire um, group of Mexican soldiers with a machine gun. It's and, a Gatlin gun. Yeah, with a Gatlin, and it's just brutal. Um, so that's kind of... And then we also get this scene of one of the soldiers gets up and gets on a horse um, and tries to run away. He's the last one. And Ramon takes this rifle that he has, his Winchester, this kind of, that's his uh, specialized weapon. And he he shoots him as he's running away. So uh, Joe's watching all this and uh, with his barkeeper friend. And that's our first indication of how skilled Ramon is and sets up him as um, the, the, anti, the anti-Joe uh, who's they're going to be the two um, skillful fighter characters um, that go throughout the film. Yeah, and uh, the other gang in this movie is a little bit different too. Um, the Baxter family, which is is the family gang from um, Yojimbo. It's it's the one led by a husband, a wife, and a son. Um, except the the wife is the one who's really running things. She's, she's in charge. Um, a little less volatile than in uh, Yojimbo. Like, they're not actually beating each other. The son isn't um, 
like kind of like the simpering child. He's he's kind of quiet. You don't really he's get still, much out yeah, of him. He's still not macho. And yeah. the wife isn't overbearing. It seems more mutual between the wife and husband a little yeah. bit. Yeah. She's definitely like running things though. Like right. you can tell. Um but I think the most interesting thing is that where in Yojimbo, the, the two gangs are fairly equal. Um, in a fistful in of dollars. In terms of terribleness. Yeah, in terms of terribleness, in terms of strength for most of the film. Um, in, in a fistful of dollars, uh, the Baxters just kind of get kicked around for, for most of the movie. Um, they're the ones who have their... Um, who, who the protagonist kills a few of their men right at the start to prove a point um, that he's valuable and worth hiring. Which, Before he knows anything about either of them. Yeah, which, by the way, he kills, in, in Yojimbo, <laughs> Sanjuro kills three people to start off the film. In A Fistful of Dollars, um, Joe kills four. I'm just saying, I think that's some one-upmanship by Leone. I, I will say that it's kind of funny. If you go into this film expecting it to be like Yojimbo, there's a, like, as he's walking up to, to do this, um, this little killing show of power, he tells the, uh, the, the casket maker, get three, get three coffins ready. And so we're like, okay, we know what's coming. And then he kills four of them. And as he's walking back, he's like, my bad, make that four coffins. <laughs> so they kind of set it up like, Oh yeah, I remember this in Yojimbo. He killed three of their guys. And then you're like, oh, he got another one. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and as 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 the film progresses, the Baxters just get stomped on more and more and more. And and they uh, never really do anything all that terrible that we see anyway. No, no. They, I mean, they're definitely not great people. They're they're gun smugglers who are um, doing some illegal stuff, but. They, they don't seem to... Um, In, instigate visit. the feud. Yeah, they don't seem to instigate the feud. They don't seem to be um, kidnapping any of the villagers' wives. Um, nothing like that. Um, and there's actually a line that, uh, that Ramon has where he says, the Baxters just want peace, so we'll let them have it for a little while because they were planning something else for later. But, I mean, even the other gang knows that the Baxters don't want to be fighting in the way that they are. Yeah, and and the result is that you end up with this um, with this much more sympathetic view of the gang than uh, than you do in Yojimbo, and I, I at least I think um, the reason for that is to kind of help vilif- uh, villainize um, the Rojos. So when when the Rojos are attacking the Baxters at any point in the movie, um, and sure you're not specifically like, one point specifically one point which we won't mention in the spoiler free section. Um, you 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 just feel bad for the Baxters because you don't see them. They're I mean they're not even running a brothel. They're just trying to right. be honest gun smugglers as honest as gun smugglers <laughs> can be. Um, and that that makes the the Rojos brothers who are just, you know, killing people left and right over the course of the film um, seem that much worse, which in turn makes Joe, who's opposing the Rojos brothers, um, that much more of a hero. And in fact, 
there's several points throughout the movie where Joe works with the Baxters to um, to to visit some kind of malady on uh, the Rojos, and a lot of that is the fact that Joe is just playing them off each other, like Sanjuro did. Um, yeah, but it feels it feels less like he's intentionally trying to pit each side against each other in this one um and more yeah, like he's, he's just, just trying, trying to, to do money. what's most advantageous for him right yeah yeah and that's that's definitely that look of this film um is that the the protagonist is out to make money um hence the name but in 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 yojimbo uh Senjuro is trying to get everybody in both gangs killed and free the town of of everybody present who's uh, causing problems, not so much in a fistful of dollars. And I, I think the sympathetic um, uh, presentation of the Baxter kind of helps that along. Yeah, and as long as we're talking about, you know, vilification and stuff like that, we have to talk about uh, the violence and the ways that uh, we see that played out. And like we were talking about with Yojimbo, this film also has moments where... Uh, you know, Joe or anyone really is uh, shooting at people and they're kind of, you know, falling over with no, they don't have squibs or anything like gushing. But then there's other moments where we have um, people being beat up in a more, uh, um, you know, hand, hand combat and kind of, you know, physical torture kind of a situation. And there's a lot of blood and a lot of, uh, brutal you know beat up makeup on joe's face and it's it's way i don't know if it's worse um or more striking because it's in color or because the makeup was just worse um worse as in uh more dramatic um but yeah it's it uh felt the this film felt more violent uh, even though it follows the same plot points there are a lot of points uh, that we're going to get to right here in a second when we get to overall because a lot of the most violent points are spoilers but those points that that we see the most violence um are kind of drawn out and not skipped over in a fistful of dollars whereas you know certain scenes were kind of glossed over in yojimbo or um were framed up differently so that like you were saying we didn't care about either side particularly much so if people are being killed we don't care about them whereas in this one we we definitely do so with that let's get into overall notes and talk through some specific things that happen near the end so for anyone who has not seen these films, uh, we do encourage you to pause now and go watch them because it will be well worth your time. Uh, but with that, let's talk about some of the ending stuff, Alex. Yeah, so um, the, big, the, big, the big thing that we didn't want to give away in the spoiler-free section um, was the scene in each of the films where the Three Brothers gang uh, massacres the other gang completely they they kill everybody including the main uh family the the husband wife and son um yeah and they do it's not like a set up fight and they just win it's they go to their house and burn it down and kill everyone as they're coming out oh yeah it's super brutal it's 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 very brutal um but the the way it feels brutal is different in both 
uh, films, uh, I would say in Yojimbo, it, it feels more like a continuation of the escalating violence that was happening up to that point between both gangs. Because they both, you know, they were both hating each other pretty hard. They were destroying each other's economic um, buildings. They were attacking each other in the streets. Capturing and killing henchmen. and Exactly, yeah. But in, uh, in A Fistful of Dollars, like we were talking about with the Baxters feeling a little more sympathetic, one of the big reasons why, besides the fact that they, they don't randomly visit violence upon the townsfolk, um, which we never see, by the way. You never see any of the townsfolk. They're just implied. Yeah, um, especially in a fistful of dollars. Especially in a fistful of dollars, yeah. Um, but when the Baxters are killed, they haven't done anything wrong in the eyes of the audience. Um, so as, yeah. as they come out and are like tragically sh- slaughtered um, to a man, first the dad, then the son, then the mother, um, you feel really bad for them. And then on the reverse, um, there are these really like red, fiery, lit up close-ups um, yeah, of each the whole... of the brothers as they're shooting at the people who come out. And it, it basically makes them look like devils. Yeah, and they're laughing hysterically. And one of the other like big differences with this scene is that in Yojimbo, as all the thugs uh, from the gang are coming out of the smoking house... And it's just smoke in Yojimbo. It's not fire uh, like it is in a fistful of dollars. But as they're coming out, they're coming out swinging. So their swords are going around, and then they kind of cut them down um, and stuff like that. So it's it feels slightly more like a fight. It's still an incredibly unfair fight. But in a fistful of dollars, the big change is that as all the, um, the henchmen are coming out, they're saying, don't shoot, we're unarmed, please don't shoot us. And then they just, like, keep gunning them down and even the point whenever he kills the uh um john baxter the head of the family he's he's john baxter is saying you can have all my territory you can have everything just just let me live and i'll leave and then um uh ramon starts saying something he like almost goes into a bad guy monologue and in the middle of a word he shoots him down it was insane it was like do you promise you have to promise to me. If you don't promise, then and it just you're like, oh, okay. Well, I guess that's where we're going with this. Um, and then and then the wife comes out and she's like, murderers, murderers, just kind of making them face what they're doing, and they shoot her down in the middle of it, and it just felt much more weighty than in Yojimbo. Yeah, and kind of uh, close to that whole discussion about violence between the two films. Um, kind of also have to talk about humor because those are the two main elements, the two, you know, the two big draws of a dark comedy. And, and these, these two films in particular, um, have a lot of violence and Yojimbo at least has a lot of humor. Um, there's almost an emphasis on making sure that it didn't get too dark over the The lightheartedness, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, whereas in a fistful of dollars, you don't really you don't really get there. there there's a couple moments that are uh, funny, but th- there's not that consistent um, drive to make light of certain situations, and and you really you you feel the gravity. It feels a lot more like a a personal struggle than uh, the political struggle in Sanjiro where people can kind of step back from it and 
um, you know, make light or um, have a funny moment or watch that idiot brother with the terrible makeup do something stupid uh, or, or something like that. And it, it gives them different tones. It makes uh, a fistful of dollars feel heavier almost more more uh, emotionally resident um and it makes yojimbo at least i think feel a little more intricate and a little more um interesting in, yeah, in a certain it's, way it's still thoughtful but in a different way um you know like i i come away from yojimbo with this kind of okay that was that was this interesting look at these characters in this town that was, you know, tearing itself apart from the inside and how one person can come in and kind of give an outside perspective and turn everything upside down. Um, whereas I remember the first time that I watched, uh, a fistful of dollars, I had seen the good, the bad and the ugly and, uh, some other Westerns, but I walked away with it. Like, I cannot believe that that film went that dark. Like it, it seriously left me with a weight when I walked away from it. It's just very different. That's, I was not expecting so much, this much humor in Yojimbo after, you know, seeing seven samurai, which was more dramatic, probably more along the lines of a fistful of dollars tonally. Um, and then knowing a fistful of dollars, I was not expecting the amount of humor that I got out of Yojimbo. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely, it leaves you with um, the sense of enjoyment, like, like you had a fun time, and if you think about what happened in the movie, like some of the really, really bad stuff that happened, like, you know, all that murder, and, you know, all that. <laughs> yeah, gam- and, and the rape was played up more and, in this one, too. Yeah, yeah, it's... Um, Actually, yeah, that's, that's interesting that um, in Yojimbo, they kind of emphasize, so one of the plot points that we've kind of mentioned... Um, is that the uh, one of the people on the three brothers' side? Is that right? Yeah. 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 Is that one one of the gang members on the three brothers' side has kidnapped the wife of a family that was traveling through the town um, after the husband was gambling with him, um, and the wife ended up being a trading card that he loses, and they talk about how. In Yojimbo, they talk about how he built a hut next to his old house that he also lost while gambling um, just to be close there. But it's a constant reminder as, you know, his wife is, I mean, they literally say that his wife is ravaged daily. Um, whereas that's not, it's kind of implied in uh, A Fistful of Dollars, but it's not played up as much. The husband is not as much of a character. Um, and it's it's still something that Joe goes and saves and reunites the family um, but it's more of like a, uh, a side point, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And part of that could just be the fact that they were aiming for, um, um, release in America eventually. Yeah. Which, so it's just toned down some yeah. of those things. Yeah. Yeah. So, for Hayes, so Hayes code reasons. Get those down. Um, so you, you don't have too much of a problem with the ratings. Yeah. Um, so it's implied it's probably definitely there, but there's enough wiggle room in terms of how it's depicted in A Fistful of Dollars to um, get away with it with anybody who's watching. Yeah, and also kind of uh, 
I guess, uh, not spending as much time with the family, but still being able to set it up. Like we said, we, that's set up right at the beginning. So we know it's there throughout the whole thing, even if they don't dig into it quite as much. Um, but the, the kind of stripping down is seen throughout the film for certain elements of Yojimbo. So, for example, in Yojimbo, there's a moment where the two clans are about to go to war, but then uh, a horseman comes in and is like, the inspector's coming, the inspector's coming, because the town is about to hold a silk fair where they get a lot of their revenue. Um, so the inspector had to come make sure that the town is ready and, uh, and properly maintained. But mostly it was just to get bribes, because that's, that's what we see um, when, yeah. when he comes. He has this uh, lots of really nice things, and Sanjuro's like, this guy's a nobody. Why does he have so much stuff? And then we see the mayor and the constable coming out and giving him bribes. But all of that is kind of, oh, and then in order, f the, the tribes can't fight while the inspector is there. So the Three Brothers tribe sends some goons to go kill a magistrate in a neighboring town so that the inspector will leave and have to go deal with that. Um, and then eventually the, the two goons are back in the town and they talk to Sanjuro while drunk about what they did and so they're used as bargaining chips and all this kind of stuff and they eventually get killed off um, and in A Fistful of Dollars basically Joe takes two of the Mexican soldiers from that have already been killed from Ramon's massacre when he's first set up and literally just uses them as dummies um, and tells each of the clans that there's these two guys out here that are going to talk about, you know, what happened, how Ramon killed all these people and stuff. Uh, so he kind of sets them up to go meet each other and duel it out. Um, but they're literally just dummies. So we don't take all this time with this character development of these two characters that are literally just exist to advance the plot. And the same goes with the constable from Yojimbo, uh, who, like we said, he's cowering the whole time and all this stuff. His character is, essentially or literally reduced to the bell ringer in the town in a fistful of dollars where he's the first person we see all he does is ring the bell um you know for the time and uh for certain events and he he tells us what the town is all about his line at the beginning is uh you'll you'll either end up rich here or you'll end up dead and so that sets us up for the town and then we really don't see him again until the very end when he rings the bell after everyone dies Right, right. And that, that kind of brings me to um, a point about these two films and probably the reason why I like um, A Fistful of Dollars so much, not just as a movie, but as an adaptation or um, a remake. I'm not sure what, what you would label it as, um, except they didn't, but... Uh, yeah, they didn't, they didn't label it at all. <laughs> yeah, just uh, we're in the spoiler section. We can bring that up now. Uh, Sergei Leone and uh, all the people who made A Fistful of Dollars, none of them credited um, Kurosawa. And Kurosawa was quoted, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said something along the lines of, uh, Leone made a fantastic movie, but it was my movie. Um, oh, that's and, interesting. And the, the to Toho Studios actually... Um, sued Leone and and his people. I'm not sure who the exact um, plaintiffs were in the case, but 
they uh, they settled out of court for like a hundred thousand um, dollars or something like that for uh, what what would you call it? It's cultural property, something like that. Intellectual property. Yeah, intellectual property. The reason I like this as an adaptation so much, or whatever you want to call it legally, um, is, is that it feels like another revision of the script from Yojimbo, and they they made some changes to the characters and stuff, but they also made this major change that instead of saying it in 1860s Japan, they're going to set it in um, the uh, late 1800s uh, Mexico. Or late 1900s Mexico. No, late late 1800s. Late 1800s Mexico. Sorry. <laughs> um, Just say the Wild West. Yeah, the Wild West. <laughs> they set it in the Wild West. And... So, so it still has the heart of the film, but with new adaptations that um, make it feel a little different and make it feel like the same story in a different location. Um, and they emphasize different parts of the film, but without losing um, what, what made uh, the characters interesting or what made the story interesting. Um, they kept the traits of the protagonist, the no-name protagonist who's a tough guy with a secret heart of gold, but is still really good at killing people. Uh, and the, the two rival gangs were super interesting still. They just they just added to it without subtracting any of the good stuff from before. Um, and they got sued in the process, but, you know, still, it's a good movie. <laughs> yeah, and if we're going to talk specifically uh, comparing A Fistful of Dollars to The Magnificent Seven as far as a Kurosawa remake goes... Um, I think what you were saying is right, that each change felt like an addition to the story and not like, oh, let's do something different and see if this works. Because I think Magnificent Seven did that for certain things, like uh, combining the misfit character and the young character that I don't think added to the story as much as just felt like they they needed to change something. Um, and also, the Magnificent Seven felt a little bit more like cookie cutter Hollywood um, Western film kind of a setup. I mean, it, Magnificent Seven is a fine film. It's it's a good Western and all that, but Sergio Leone just has something stylistically that he puts in A Fistful of Dollars and all of his subsequent films uh, that make him, you know, the king of Western films. I think he's still probably the best director who's ever made Western films. Cause he just has such a vision and, um, and, uh, you know, combine, combine him with his Ennio Morricone scores and all of that. Uh, it just, it, it gives a feeling that you, you come away from a fistful of dollars, uh, kind of just drenched in this feeling that man, I, the wild West was really cool. Kind of a thing. Right. Um, and, uh, and so it's like it's those those little touches and the other things that he like you were saying he understood what Yojimbo was going for he understood the story really deeply and was able to just build on it as opposed to changing things for the sake of making something different for sure for sure and i don't think we can uh mention this without uh explaining 
what a spaghetti western is because we definitely uh, teased that oh, yeah. earlier in the episode. Yeah. Um, but a spaghetti western is an interesting subgenre of western that typically featured Italian crew members and a and director. mix and director, especially director, you know, Sergio Leone, very Italian. Um, yeah. But the, the cast would be an international cast. They would be a mix of American actors and Italian actors and Spanish actors and German actors. Um, and on set, they would all just speak their own languages whenever they uh, recorded. And this is typically how it was done. It wasn't done on every single film, but this is definitely how it was done on A Fistful of Dollars. So when it was recorded, each actor is speaking in his native language, but then it's overdubbed for re-release in each country. And most of these films tended to be released first in Italy and then America. And, and that's definitely the case with A Fistful of Dollars. Um, so so when you watch this movie and you're wondering why the little kid's voice is so annoying. Um, <laughs> and doesn't match his lips. Dubbed. It doesn't match his lips at all. Um, that's I think if, if I can like just nitpick anything about A Fistful of Dollars, that's it. Is that the kid... <laughs> is super annoying because of the dub. Um, mama, mama. Oh gosh. <laughs> oh, it's the worst. It feels like it feels like an adult man trying to sound like a child when when it's recorded, and it just doesn't work. But the I mean the rest the rest is great. Don't get me wrong. Great film. Just silence those dubs on the kids, and perfect film. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know. Spaghetti Westerns were mostly, like, if you look at Spaghetti Westerns, most of the ones you're going to find are by Sergio Leone, but there are several, there, there were really just a handful of Italian directors that kind of defined this genre, but they did it so well that it has become kind of ingrained in the Hollywood genre system. Uh, so, like, Sergio uh, Corbucci, um, who did films like The Great Silence and Django, not Django Unchained, um, <laughs> no, uh, the, the the original Django on which many Django's are based. Yeah, and then there's also Sergio Salima, uh, the Big Gun Down, lots of Sergios, um, and some others. Uh, you can look it up, but it it was really this this interesting niche of filmmaker uh, Italian filmmakers working in one genre that all did it really well and kind of earned their place in cinema history. Yeah, yeah. I kind of like the idea of it being um, a rule that if if you're an Italian director named Sergio, you have to do spaghetti westerns. <laughs> yeah. Like, they, they don't give you a choice. Like, if you walk into film school on day one, they're like, oh, go to the western department. Um, which they don't, they don't have genre departments, but, like, it might. That, that just seems cool to me. <laughs> also, fun fact... I'm pretty sure I heard this somewhere, but I think in uh, Eastern countries like China, uh, the spaghetti westerns are actually called macaroni westerns. Oh, really? I think so. Why? I don't know. Someone fact checked me on that, but I mean, that would be, macaroni that would be is another Italian noodle, so yeah. it works. But maybe they just like macaroni. But I mean, I, I like mac macaroni better than spaghetti, so. Fair there you enough. Go. Hey, That's, China maybe, has the right idea just, on that one. 
Maybe you just start calling them macaroni westerns. We'll we'll bring it over. Maybe I will. (laughs) (laughs) And all our listeners will be really confused. Um, So yeah, if you think about it, this is really impressive to have uh, two films, um, one based on the other, but both made by um, master filmmakers and both ended up being classics in, in their own right. And I think they work fantastically as a double feature. If you're ever interested in uh, cooking up a double feature for yourself, um, absolutely go here because two classics back to back, doesn't get much better than, um, you know, Jimbo and a fistful of dollars. Very different, very similar, but remember, remember kids always ask before plagiarizing, but if you do it right and you can pay for it, you just might earn international fame and fortune. Right. Just, you know, make sure you have a, a, well, nowadays it'd be a couple mil lying around. Yeah, be nowadays. Careful. Be careful. Okay. So uh, let's talk about our coming attractions, what we're going to talk about next week. Um, and it's is, delicious. It is delicious. Um, the director, Edgar Wright, um, pretty famous for his Cornetto trilogy, as well as... Uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the world and we're going to be talking about uh, the Cornetto trilogy so Shaun of the Dead from 2004 Hot Fuzz from 2007 and The World's End from 2013 and if you're wondering why I'm calling it the Cornetto trilogy like I did for so long before asking <laughs> um, the, the, the answer is that there's an ice cream called Cornetto ice cream in each of the films and even though they're not officially trilogies it's not an official trilogy. A lot of fans tend to group it together. Yeah, so the the other thing that connects all three of these films are the leads of Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. So they each are two buddies in all three of these films in very different situations. Uh, and then people found the ice cream thread, so that's kind of more catchy than uh, the Simon Pegg-Nick Frost trilogy. <laughs> it rolls off the tongue better. And Hot Fuzz is available on Netflix for anyone watching along. And check out the other two because they are uh, great and they're great to watch together. For sure. And don't forget that we are going to be posting our uh, monthly Twitter poll on uh, our Twitters this week. And that is for you guys to pick what you guys want us to do for an episode. We want to get your thoughts on a, a topic and we are going to be covering what this poll, Jonathan? Uh, This poll will be trilogies, so we're going to put up four trilogies, and y'all tell us what you want us to to watch and talk about. Right on. Well, that's about all the time we have for this episode. If you have movie suggestions for us, or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at at JSSatchel. And I'm at Alex Geringer. And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlinks.wordpress.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next week. All right, see ya.